the most part, they're being prevented from the level of autophagy that they would accomplish if they just had less of the insulin. And that's why, whether you're low carb or high carb, I have yet to see anything that provides evidence as to why it would be a good thing for insulin to be persistently high. Even if you're an intense bodybuilder and you want to have maximum anabolic effect, you should still be able to do that within a limited span of time because that's how the body's built. Hey listeners, it's your host, Jeffrey Wu. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the HVMN Podcast. Dave Feldman, known as Dave Keto around the internet, is one of my favorite researchers today. But he doesn't come from the world of academia. Like me, he's actually a computer engineer by training. But Dave's seriously one of the most well-read people in the scientific literature and has some of the most interesting and nuanced ideas around metabolism, lipidology, and cholesterol hands down. With years of rigorous N equals 1 self-experiments around his diet, particularly low-carb diets, he's helping drive a new conversation around, is cholesterol really predictive for cardiovascular disease and should I be worried about cholesterol on a ketogenic diet? Dave and I discuss what a ketogenic diet hyper-responder is, the role of cholesterol in the body and how risky high cholesterol really is, and we reflect on the good and bad of modern scientific research culture. As a bonus, we also talk about Dave's most recent experiment, a carnivore diet. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me on, Jeff. I think there's a lot of ways we can take this program, but I think I'd like to start from our backgrounds. I think we're cut from very similar class, and I... Hopefully I'm not too arrogant to presume a similar background, but I know they're both computer scientists and engineers by background. I would say sort of applied our engineering systems thinking mindset to the human body. I think that's the way I, I, I like to describe myself at least. My story, I, I came at it from more of a human performance perspective. How do we take someone that's healthy? How do we make them better? I think you came from more of a health or, or a medical perspective? How do we get someone that's maybe not looking healthy or preventing disease? How do we get someone from a not so happy outlook in terms of health span and lifespan and bring that back to something happier? So from that lens, I think my audience and, and I think all listeners would love to hear a background story of how you as a software engineer by training became, I would say, one of the most well-read and cited researchers and scientists at the edge of low-carb research. I, I, I don't mean that lightly. I think when you talk to a lot of active academics, you know you know your stuff. I mean, you're, you're very well-run in the literature and very deep on that. So how does that happen from software guy to you kind of have an encyclopedia of all the latest on cholesterol, keto, low-carb? You know, it is funny because I'm, I'm really so... Like, I'm just barely three years into this. I mean, you go back three years and a few months, and I don't know anything about cholesterol or lipids or any of that. But to your point, before going on a low-carb diet, nobody would have considered me sick, including myself. No way. Um, I And so this is, this is where it's interesting because we see a lot of this nutrition science advancing from one of these two fronts, right? A lot of people go on low-carb. Really, I would say probably most people go on low carb, go on low carb because of a health crisis or because they're they're concerned about losing the weight. It's only really been kind of a more recent modern phenomenon that a lot of athletes are saying, you know, I want to try something really new. And I, you know, I have a friend who's been doing this and so forth, and they observe it happening. This is where it kind of gets very related to my research, because those people who are in the health crisis who go low carb particularly if they're starting out very overweight, will tend to see their cholesterol drop when going low carb in general, not always, but a lot of times, particularly if you're going from like, say, obese to overweight, but not all the way down to thin. But you have a lot of people uh, like us who you eat low carb, let's say you're very lean, uh, you're very fit, 
and for that matter, you're, you're full-blown keto, you're really keeping the carbs down, your chances of seeing higher levels of cholesterol have just jumped up. That's a lot of what my research is showing. And that's what happened to me. My dad and my sister started low carb around the same time I did because they got inspired by what I was doing. They got their blood work, but they, you know, I was doing marathon training. They weren't. They, their numbers jumped up slightly. Mine jumped up by a lot. And at that time, there was no resources. There was just nowhere to go to find out about what this means. What does it mean to see my cholesterol go up while going low carb? Yeah. What triggered so, that initial experimentation? Was it? Yeah. It personal was, interest. Well, this is this is where like being a software engineer really ended up changing the game. Yeah. And a lot of times I say this, this isn't false modesty. I think this could have been another uh, senior software engineer, similar to me, that might have ended up in the same situation. You have a lot of free access to a lot of important information, uh, like lipidology, which is the study behind lipids, which are cholesterol, and they're also, you know, the fatty acids that move around inside your body to fuel your body. That access, I mean, before you'd have to like go to a university. I don't. I can not only go on, you know, and read different articles, but I could go on YouTube and so forth. So I could become pretty self-educated fairly right. quickly. You can, you can go on PubMed like every other grad student. Correct. And then on top of that, I have this different perspective that you'll relate to and that I'm already used to looking at networks. And all, pretty much all modern networks um, have a much more distributed base, as in you don't have one thing that's entirely authoritative and telling all the other things what to do. You can't, not really, because it won't scale. So what you do is you have a distributed object network. So they're, they're distributed, and basically you have what would be the intelligence of it spread out over several different things, which is kind of like, the brain. There's not one brain cell that runs the show and tells all the other brain cells. No, they, between all of them talking together, you know, just like an anthill, you have some intelligence. And there may be some areas that are more important than other areas. But all things considered, the more that I was getting into lipidology, the more I found that it was like a network. And I stand by that to this day. It, it was a distributed object network. The code is in the collective. And the very first thing that I noticed that I that was right there physically in the literature, but wasn't spoken about as such, was that it was an energy distribution system. That actually, no, it's arguably its primary purpose of these lipoproteins, these lipid-carrying proteins, was, I mean, had many jobs, but its main job was to deliver these triglycerides. And the triglycerides are the fatty acids we're fueled on. So if you right now, if you go to your doctor, if you get a lipid panel, right, there's four tests you'll see. You'll see total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, the so-called good cholesterol. You'll see LDL cholesterol, the so-called bad cholesterol, and you'll see triglycerides. And really, once you start getting the hang of it, it's actually pretty easy to understand what's going on. These lipoproteins, they're like boats that your body makes to move around these lipids. Well, HDL cholesterol is not really a type of cholesterol. It's really just cholesterol found on high-density lipoproteins, HDL. And, and these LDL are the boats cholesterol. carrying the actual – and these are the boats actually carrying the cholesterol. Yeah. Yeah. Your body makes these boats, and they make them – the whole of the boats are the same membranes that line your cell. It's called phospholipids. It's really kind of exciting because you know how oil and water doesn't mix well? 
right? Well, your blood is water-based. How do you move oil in through and out your, you know, through your veins and your arteries? How do you pull that off? Well, your body is actually a genius about this. It makes these little boats, packs the lipids inside, and it's not just cholesterol. It's not just triglycerides. It's also fat-soluble vitamins, the vitamins that also are oils. Have you ever, have you ever uh, taken vitamin A, D, E, or K? Yeah, they're always in fat. They're always in olive oil or something. Exactly. They're, they're always in like a little, or they're in a little capsule that's like soft, right? It's a soft gel. It's because yeah. these are all lipids, right? And, and your body takes great care because your cells need it, takes great care to package them into these lipoproteins. So as I'm learning about this, I'm like, whoa, this thing looks so much like a network. I'd swear it's got to be dynamic. But I'm at the same. I'm at the at the same time. I'm kind of like second guessing myself. Like, am I just projecting my my own profession onto <laughs> onto this uh, field of knowledge? But then I started rapidly testing. Uh, I started taking tests every couple weeks, and eventually I started testing even every day. And I found that I could move around my LDL cholesterol, my HDL cholesterol, my triglycerides, all of these markers that are in that test. I can move them around very rapidly. So you, you were doing venal blood draws daily. Yes, there was. Th this <laughs> is this is kind of the story behind that first one. Uh, I first had eight data points over three months, brought that to low carb Vale, talked to a number of the different uh, doctors there. But in particular, I talked to uh, Ivor Cummins, who, of course, is um, everybody knows who Ivor Cummins is. The other engineer who was also into cholesterol. The fat emperor on Twitter. Yep. And I said, I'm. I'm going to go ahead and because the only way I can really feel this out is to just do this over one week. So over one week, I'm going to eat to a particular food plan and see if I can induce this pattern that I'm seeing. And the pattern is now somewhat well known within the low carb community as the inversion pattern, which is to say that even if your cholesterol, whatever your cholesterol levels are at, if your cholesterol is normally at, you know, say this level and you eat a lot of fat, it will drop as in your LDL will actually go down. Which right. is super counterintuitive. Correct. Right? So let's say your cholesterol is right here. You're on a low-carb, high-fat diet, and you have a lot more fat. You actually eat a lot more fat. Your LDL cholesterol will go down typically in response to that. After I demonstrated this in my first public presentation, I had a lot of people requesting, how would you do that? I was like, well, I actually just ate lots and lots of fat, lots of fatty meats. Uh, lots of heavy whipping cream, et cetera, and basically ended up being called the Feldman Protocol, and I wrote it up as something that's now up on the site at cholesterolcode.com. And so a lot of people have done this in order to drop their cholesterol. has about an 85% success rate. It's not, it's not 100%, but it's striking how common it is. And in fact, we did a, an experiment about a year and a half ago at uh, KetoFest where we had like two dozen people. Uh, do this all at the same time. And same thing, about an 85% success rate for everybody. About 19 out of 22 saw their cholesterol drop somewhere between 5 and 38%. Which is insane and very, very counterintuitive. Three days. You, you, I, and you, so I think that uh, just to underline it for the listeners here, when you talk to a typical trained primary care practitioner, when you ask them, how do I lower my cholesterol? They'll say, eat less fat, eat more vegetables, eat more. Essentially, it's a zero-sum game. If you're not eating fat, you've got to be eating carbohydrate or protein. What you're saying is that your data and the data you've collected from folks around in the community is completely opposite to the recommendations of what, people, what primary care practitioners are telling people. Well, let me, let me caveat real quick, because on low-carb, my 
baseline cholesterol will be higher. So there's really kind of two timescales, if you will. One is what metabolic diet I am on. And in this sense, the practitioners are right. So let's say that I decide tomorrow to become a low-fat, high-carb vegan. I'm quite confident that my LDL cholesterol will not only go down, but I, I know how I could probably get it to well below 100, maybe even like 70. Why that is comes back to the central core of my hypothesis, of what, what I'd call the lipid energy model, which is the reason for this is that now I'm not being powered by fatty acids. I'm being powered by carbohydrates. And if I'm being powered by carbohydrates, that means it's going to get converted to glucose. It means more of my energy stores are in glycogen. And there's less that's coming in on the fatty acid side. Why would this have an impact on my cholesterol numbers? The reason is because the cholesterol found in LDL, LDL cholesterol, that was a boat that started out most of the time as a VLDL, very low density lipoprotein, which was bloated with triglycerides. Why did it start out bloated with triglycerides? Because that's actually where you're getting fueled by fat quite a bit within the diet. Now, you may be fueled also by chylomicrons. That's another lipoprotein from food you just ate. And of course, the one you hear about all the time, which is ketones, um, which is fatty acids broken down into ketone bodies that don't need to be transported around in, in these lipoproteins. But here's the secret. The secret is, while we call it the keto diet, when you really sit down and do the math, actually, we're powered much more by the direct delivery of fatty acids many of those on board, these VLDLs, which will then ultimately, as they drop them off, remodel to LDLs. VLDLs last for a small amount of time because they quickly drop off their energy. LDLs will last anywhere from two to four days because they serve other purposes within the body. And the cholesterol that's found on, in, on board of these, that's what they're going to zero in on. So in a sense, they're right. If I decide to go ahead and get powered by glucose and therefore powered more by carbs. So like sure, a high carb, low fat diet. I believe you might have in inverted that just to just to make sure that's not like low carb, high fat vegan diet. It's you're, you're meaning high carb, low fat vegan diet as an example. Well, and, and for that matter, I did a, a recent experiment. I don't know if you'd heard about it, but I really wanted to demonstrate that it wasn't even food quality. <laughs> so I ate a I ate a diet that I was quite confident nobody would recommend. I had white bread and processed meat. What I did was uh, I isolated down to, to not just white bread, but I got Wonder Bread, which is just trash. Like I do a lot of these experiments so other people don't have to. So please don't get inspired by any of the things I'm about to say. I knew if I just gorged on white bread and lean processed meat that my cholesterol would drop. And I predicted that and even uh, posted it in a video which I kept private right up until the point that the experiment was concluded, and then I switched it on, so it was timestamped. That experiment, indeed, my LDL cholesterol, the start of the experiment, at the point where I finally ramped up to full speed, my LDL was, I want to say, 296, so about 300. Mm -hmm. And in seven days, I dropped it to 83, from 296 to 83. So I dropped it effectively yeah. 213 milligrams per deciliter in seven days, something no drug that I know of on the market could pop, could accomplish, right? right? All I did was I changed my metabolic pathway. I was going from a fat-based uh, energy source to a carb-based energy source. That's it, right? And this is important because I really want to emphasize this. The reason I can feel as confident as I do right now is not because I'm certain that the so-called lipid hypothesis is 
wrong. The lipid hypothesis postulates this is decades old. This is the one we all hear about, which is higher cholesterol just means higher mortality, particularly from heart disease. Mm -hmm. It's because what I feel they don't account for properly is the metabolic aspect of this. So I do think you can have high LDL and it be a bad sign. But I'm very careful with my wording here. When I say having high LDL as a bad sign, I don't mean the high LDL is itself the causal or the um, instantiating problem. I don't know that that's ever quite been demonstrated. Mm-hmm. We, we can see that it's a part of atherosclerosis, but we don't yet know to what degree it's recruited right. for the same reason you coagulate in your blood and so forth, right? There's so many mechanisms that, that call upon LDL in the point of crisis. So this is a distinction between causality and correlation. Exactly. I think is one, exactly. another way to look at it. If you if you see ambulances at car accidents, but you don't know anything about ambulances, you could correctly say, "Hey, I see a strong association between these big uh, wailing red vehicles. lights, yeah, with red crosses." Right. And if I told you right now, if I said, "So you know, ambulances are also a death trap of any vehicle you can ride in." For each minute that you spend in an ambulance, your chance of dying is so much higher than your own car. So don't ride in one, right? Right. You you know better. You know that there's a good reason why you're more likely to die in an ambulance. It's because you were probably injured or somehow dying, which is why you're in an ambulance, right? Right. We already know if you if you in an animal in an they do this all the time in animal models they will uh, do something called denuding where they uh, beat up like say the carotid artery on purpose and that will induce atherosclerosis atherosclerosis being the build up of plaque in the arterial wall mm-hmm. we know this is happening because it's a reparative event it's being as a result it's attempting to do something about it and some amount of atherosclerosis can be regressed everybody acknowledges that how much of this is a process that's already in place to deal with the problem you brought, such as, say, with smoking, which has nothing to do with uh, cholesterol production, but has everything to do with atherosclerosis and heart disease, mm-hmm. right? They have to disentangle that. They have to be able to say, okay, because you could say ambulances cause uh, traffic accidents. It could be that you've got really poor driving EMTs and so forth. But first, you have to control for what amount they're helping. They haven't achieved doing that yet. So getting back to why it is that I can feel the comfort level that I do thus far, which isn't saying that I'm 100% comfortable, just more comfortable than probably most people who have a higher LDL, is that I see context as being very relevant. And the context that I've seen so far in the literature is pretty strong that if you have high HDL cholesterol and you have low triglycerides, then your LDL becomes very, very irrelevant whenever Mm -hmm. they put those three together. Yeah. When you, when you look at the HDL and the triglyceride ratio papers, when you look at the ones where they have those, the triad I'm speaking of, where it's high HDL and low triglycerides, or for that matter, when you look at the papers that look at, the, look at it from the other direction where people have low HDL and high triglycerides, that's actually called atherogenic dyslipidemia. And it's typically associated with having a lot of small, dense LDL particles. That's the dark direction. Now, I'm in pursuit of trying to get more data on this triad to try to see for ourselves. And, of course, we have a lot of people who are emerging from the low-carb community who themselves exhibit this triad. Right. I have to say right now the data looks encouraging. Again, I try to be a good scientist, and I don't want to say I know what I don't know. But thus far, it's looking pretty good, and that includes my own CIMT data. I don't know if you're up to speed on this one, but 
CIMT uh, the on the left and right side of your neck is something called the carotid artery. It gives blood and oxygen to your brain. It's super vital. And what they'll do is they'll measure the thickness of the sides of the walls of this to get a sense of your atherogenic burden. Mm. It's not a perfect test, but it's actually pretty decently correlated with what your genuine risk is. While on a ketogenic diet and running at LDL levels above 200 milligrams per deciliter, just considered super high, yep. and LDL particle count above 2,000, which is also considered super high, my CIMT has been getting thinner, not getting thicker. In fact, that's not even supposed to have. It's supposed to stay about the same or progress with my age. Hmm. It was getting thinner until I did one experiment last year called the weight gain experiment, in which case it shot up on both sides. Whoa. And you were eating? I was eating just bread and fat. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of both. I was having okay, pizzas. So I was having Subway sandwiches. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I was intentionally trying to gain 16 pounds. Or sorry, I was trying to gain 20 to 25 pounds of fat for that. For other reasons that I won't go into, it's a long, uh, it's a yeah. long explanation. But I was curious what my CIMT would do in the wake of that experiment, and yeah. sure enough, it had jumped up on both sides. And just to just to finish, I've since gotten one more, which was last month in December, and it's regressed again after going back to keto and after once again having super high levels of LDL and LDLP, which is very cool data. I want to get back to some of the more experiments, but I think. What you touched upon is the differences between someone who's healthy looking to optimize their biomarkers versus someone that's obese looking to lose weight. And I think the energy network model, I think, is a very elegant way to describe why you would expect someone who's healthier looking to get even more fit or, or even better biomarkers would see an increase in LDL because you're going to be deriving most of your metabolism from fat and therefore you need more of these transporters, these boats to fuel your fatty acids around. That makes sense. I think if you just look at it from a, a systems perspective, here's a here perspective on for obese folks who have probably some broader metabolic problems. Why do you see the LDL going down and, and how do you uh, explain the variance there? So this is this is theoretical, to be sure. My theory is fairly straightforward in that you're moving from what is a more metabolic deranged based state to a metabolically healthy slash flexible state. So you remember how I said a little bit earlier that I do believe LDL can be high for a bad reason. Now I wanna kinda of go back to, cause I think this, this analogy will carry now since I sort of talked about these in terms of boats before. This will also help as to why having low triglycerides are relevant to this larger equation. So you have these boats, the job of these boats, whether you're on a low carb diet or not, is to be available for your tissues who need the contents inside these boats, particularly those fatty acids. So even if you're on a high carb, low fat diet, there's still some degree, if you're healthy with where your body fat during the periods of time where you're fasting and you're not, you know, you're between meals or you're sleeping, your liver will release these boats, these VLDLs. And they're moving about and whatever tissues are like, oh, yeah, I need I need some energy. They've, they've got receptors that can bind to and pull the cargo off. Right. So they're constantly docking and dropping off those triglycerides. And that's why whether you're on a low carb diet or a high carb diet, you should see low triglycerides because it suggests that these boats are finding places to dock and drop the energy off properly. Right. OK. Now, what if there's a problem? What if you're not dropping off energy? Why wouldn't? You'd be dropping off energy to these tissues. Well, you wouldn't be if they're maxed out. So if your mm. own personal fat threshold is exceeded, because you'll hear the term personal fat threshold a lot, 
Um, I'm sure you may have even talked about it with guests already. It's a threshold point with where your your adipose tissue is maxed we're, out. We're maxed out. So, yeah, we can't hold anymore. And this is this is a problem because fat cells don't get the credit they deserve. We'd like to just not have any of them. We'd like to not see them expand and so forth. These guys are pros. These adipocytes, they are good at staging and pacing your fat into and back out of. I like to liken them to sort of like food banks, if you will. Imagine um, VLDLs are sort of like the large trucks that unload a whole lot of food into them. And then they're nearby other tissues that want that fat over time. And so during the fasted period, it's fine. They're slowly sprinkling it out to nearby tissues that can then use it, right? But no, in this scenario, you've already maxed them out. You've been eating and eating and eating. You're just chopping down those pizzas. You're chopping down the... And what happens? You get it so maxed out that even this, those boats that are supposed to be there, I mean, they're, for, they're important for your survival, are just packed full of these triglycerides. They've got nowhere to park it. Right. Right? So what happens in that circumstance is you start developing something called ectopic fat. And ectopic fat, the, the best way to just, in layman's terms, is it's, it's fat being stored in tissues that weren't designed to store fat. So you've heard of fatty liver, yeah. right? You've heard of uh, pancreas accumulating fat. You've heard of the heart accumulating fat, muscles accumulating fat. Like anywhere you're having to put fat where it doesn't belong is another way of just saying your body's ran out of room. And that's a dark sign. You need to go after that. Yeah. But there's one other thing that can happen now. Those boats that now are just trying to like pack on the fat wherever they can, there's a lot of them. A lot of these VLDLs end up still becoming LDLs. So now you have high LDLs for a bad reason. A bad reason couples with having high triglycerides. You're seeing that you're seeing these boats all bunched up in the harbors, not knowing where to go. Right. Let me go the other direction to give a nice contrast. Now, instead, you are a lean, mean, low-carb, fat-burning machine. So I'll see somebody. There's a uh, there's an ultramarathoner. I can't use his name because he wants to remain anonymous. But there's an yeah. ultramarathoner I know, and he has LDL. Uh, I'll just I'll just say it's in the numbers that you know doctors were freaked out about. But he keeps turning around just great biometric mar- mar- uh, markers. His LDL is super crazy high, yet his triglycerides are super low regularly turning around something in the 30s, which is unheard of, 30 milligrams per deciliter, Mm -hmm. right? Well, I'm an engineer. What am I doing? I'm looking at empty boats, LDL, that probably started out as VLDL, that probably needed to be at that capacity in order to meet the super high demand of triglycerides, because this guy does not run on carbs. He runs on those fatty acids. So yeah, I think this, yeah, no, just not, not sorry to cut you off here, but I think, but it's a super elegant explanation. I think it also explains fasted glucose levels. It's a, it's, it's a, like if you're looking yeah. at glucose as fuel or sugar as fuel or triglycerides or fatty acids as fuel, it's also the same explanation for essentially, you know, type two diabetes where you have so much packed sugar that your fasted sugar starts rising. And that's a sign of type two diabetes, as opposed to looking at or prioritizing sugar as a fuel or fatty acid as a fuel. You're just saying, let's look at the network. Your cells require some energetic demand. And whether it's high sugar or high triglycerides for a bad reason, that means your body is not efficient at processing processing this extra energy. And that's a sign of metabolic dysfunction, which I think is a very, you know, almost like a physics explanation as opposed to sort of a 
small little micro picture that people are you know looking at, which I think is very well articulated. That, that makes a lot of sense. Very cool. Yeah, and it's for me like I I was always I was never a deep math engineer. I was always an abstract mechanics engineer. Hmm. So I was always the guy in the room who was always looking at it uh, from an architect perspective. I always need to see holistically this the larger pattern. I need to see how it all kind of fit together, right? Per what you're talking about, for me, eventually everyone will just kind of get it to the that sense if I'm right. Right. And then past that point, we can keep we can start looking at this from a metabolic framework, which I think is imperative that we start doing like as soon as possible. This is why it makes perfect sense why you would see high glucose coupled with high triglycerides. Mm-hmm. What's happening is the whole thing is now getting overloaded and there's nowhere to put the cargo. And we already know that these patterns align in a properly functioning metabolism. They come to spare it and it almost becomes like a spin wheel of choose your metabolic fate as to why things go bad because the system's trying to figure out what it can do, but that it doesn't have a lot of practice with. Ancestrally, we don't have a lot of practice with food availability around the clock. Yeah. We don't have that. We've had plenty of practice with famines and food scarcity. And that's why our body has so many things, has so many hormones having to do with bringing up energy. It really has just like the one hormone, (laughs) insulin, right? With packing it away. It's also why insulin, I mean, it's really fascinating because when you learn about the insulin, um, you may know this as a a software guy. Have you heard the, the term composite response? No. So a composite response, I have an analogy for you. It goes like this. Imagine you're running a diner. When you're running the diner, you have open opening hours where you've got the customers coming in and you're doing business as normal. Mm-hmm. And then you have closing hours. And during closing hours is when you get stuff done that you can't do while the customers are there. But what you do in the after hours can be multiple different things. So mm-hmm. There's janitorial work. Um, oh, but you know what? Now you need some people to reset the IT. But that can happen at the same time that the people are doing the janitorial work. Oh, and there's somebody who needs to patch, you know, some drywall, right? So you're paralyzing some processes. Right, right. Okay. For that matter, it makes sense for you to try to push everything that you wouldn't want to be a part of the customer experience to be in those after hours. Therefore, right. it's it's a period of time for which there is a possible number of different things you'll do. It's a composite of these things. Here's the catch to that. There's a downside. What if one of those tasks takes too long? Well, then it impacts your opening hours, right? The patching on the drywall kind of goes out of control. Mm-hmm. Ah, well, you don't you don't really have something you can do about that. Uh, you've got to just keep the place closed until the work is done. Well, think about this from the body perspective. You have insulin coming in, and it's and it's kind it's got a lot of muscle. A lot of things need to, you know, we're talking sympathetic versus parasympathetic. We've got, hey, we need to let all the cells know it's time to go ahead and grab energy. And we need to also arrange a whole bunch of other things at the same time. It's not surprising that things like the immune response would also piggyback on top of that because it's kind of a conditional event. I would call it a composite response. So what then happens if you have the response persistently? What happens if insulin remains on so the the shop remains closed? How do you deal with that? And the short answer is you don't, right? Right. You, you, 
you try to work around it, but ultimately the cells themselves, because they manage their own operations, start trying to themselves, they bring down their own uh, insulin sensitivity, understandably so, because they have to do some form of autophagy. But for the most part, they're being prevented from the level of autophagy that they would accomplish if they just had less of the insulin. And that's why whether you're low carb or high carb, I have yet to see anything that provides evidence as to why it would be a good thing for insulin to be persistently high. Don't know of any scenario. Even if you're an intense bodybuilder and you want to have maximum anabolic effect, you should still be able to do that within a limited span of time because that's how the body's built. Right. I don't think that's controversial. Are you on a ketogenic diet? Interested in intermittent fasting? Well, listen up. We're launching three brand new products to make keto and fasting easier and better. HVMN MCT oil powder, Keto Collagen Plus, and Fasting Aid. Our MCT oil powder is made of pure C8 fat for fast and sustained keto energy. Our Keto Collagen Plus blends grass-fed collagen protein with MCT C8 to give you the best of the worlds of fat and protein. And our Fasting Aid doubles down on the metabolic benefits of fasting while helping suppress appetite. Currently, these are all on pre-sale at 10% off. The pre-sale discount ends on February 22nd, 2019. Visit www.hvmn.com pod to learn more. You can still order after that date, but without that 10% off discount. So act fast. Now, back to the podcast. I want to get a little bit more tactical, and maybe this is a little bit more speculative. I know a lot of people in our community are either fast or eat a ketogenic diet. And one of the, and I'm sure you hear this a lot, my LDL goes up. And I think you describe this as a lean mass hyper responder. You have high HDL, you have low triglycerides, but your LDL is up. And usually what I respond is that one, and I think very similar to how you describe it, it's an irrelevant biomarker. This uh, it is not a causative effect for cardiovascular risk. Don't worry about it. Or two, maybe you recommend, okay, maybe you look at more polyunsaturated fatty acids see if that tempers the LDL side. I'm curious what your viewpoint is on that. Do you just usually recommend or tell people, hey, don't worry about it? Or should you alter your fat load to, to try to lower it a little bit? I pretty much never tell anybody to worry or not to worry. I never, I never give, you know, I'm always, I'm always emphasizing that I won't give medical advice. And I'm upfront about, again, not knowing for sure if the lipid hypothesis is true or false. Right. Yet, I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm, I'm, that's the wording I use. As I say, I'm right. cautiously optimistic. Now, there's some people, to your point, who go, I hear you, Dave. Still, it's just a little too high for me to be comfortable with. I could be comfortable with an LDL of 150. I can't be comfortable with an LDL of 300. Dave, how do I change that? Right. This will change as the data changes. As it stands right at this moment in time, of all the potential solutions on the table, of what I think I would do, if I were in this spot, is I would actually just be more likely to leave keto and stay low carb. So mm. I might bring, uh, rather than being like 15 net carbs, I would say consider being at like 100 net carbs. Uh, at 100 mm. net carbs, you're now going to be fueled more by uh, glucose and therefore filling up your glycogen stores. Mm. Again, this is my theory. Your glycogen stores in the liver being high enough means it feels less necessity via very many around. different paths, yeah. right, to mobilize as much fatty acids. That'll make you feel better with the numbers. I can't say that I I know from how I, me personally, how I feel, and what I also see in my metabolic numbers, I don't like how that looks. I don't, but that's, that's just me. 
Second to that, I would say uh, consider bringing down saturated fat in favor of monounsaturated fat. It won't have as big of, a, of an impact typically. For some people, they say that they've seen a bigger effect. But here's the catch with that. Saturated fat is almost a kind of separate category from the coupling of monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. So oftentimes, if something's high in monounsaturated fat, it's proportionately a little higher in polyunsaturated fat. So to date, I don't yet know how much of the effect we see with higher monounsaturated fatty acids is really just a slightly higher amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids. Because mm. I will say this, if you do bring up your PUFAs, your polyunsaturated fatty acids, substantially more, pretty decent chance you bring down your LDL. Mm. But I have... I just can't recommend that. I don't, I really dislike uh, what I know about polyunsaturated fatty acids at those levels. And it's usually because you need refined oils to get to that degree. Yeah, let's talk about that. I think that's an interesting topic right now because I think you have, and this is maybe just going a little bit down the the keto community where you have, our, or a discussion at least around going carnivore, which is very high saturated fat in terms of your fat load versus yeah, PUFAs and, and vegetable oils and refined vegetable oils. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspective on omega-6s versus omega-3s. Uh, can we unpack some of the discussion around the different types of fat? If we buy the sure. lipid hypothesis and lipid transport model where fat isn't you know, the worst thing ever, what kind of fat should I be considering now? Okay, so um, here's a super brief overview. You, you have saturated fats, which means, um, I'll just tell you the very easy way to think of it. There's no double bonds in saturated fat, right? Yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's, one, it's one long string. Bunch, when, it's like a carbon string with all the, and a bunch of hydrogens around it. Yeah. It's, correct. It's, it's like a correct. very straight line it's, as opposed to crinkled when you have double bonds and all of that. Right. The double bonds are where you end up having um, one double bond means it's mono and saturated. Mono being one. Poly is multiple double bonds, polyunsaturated fats. And both omega-3s and omega-6s are uh, polys. The main thing is, is that they are essential fatty acids. As the existing literature goes, you do need them. We do find that the body has some particular points of it. It's funny, this is actually a little bit of a side project of mine in that I'm sort of trying to pursue down the exact nature of the delivery mechanism because that part kind of interests me. It's mm. not like it's needed everywhere. It's needed in some areas very predominantly, like in, you know, the eyes and so forth. Yeah. And, I, and I'm very curious as to how that process works and whether or not it's actually true that we really cannot make double bond fatty acids within the body. That's what the literature will tell you right now, but I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of Isn't alpha-linoic acid a precursor for omega-6 and 3? Yes, I believe so. So I think so. So, so I think, but I think the conversion rate is slow. So, but, but right. I hear your point. Yes. But yeah. So here's what happens at high doses of polyunsaturated fatty acids. And actually, I'm not even sure if I can qualify what that threshold that is for high. But I do know this: there's a greater degree of two things. One is that production, the assembly of lipoproteins themselves are more likely to get uh, stunted and then restarted at a certain threshold of PUFAs in the composition of the lipoproteins. This is sometimes touted as a good thing, like, oh, good, your your liver won't make more of them. I, again, hey, the body's trying to do something and failing at doing it, even though it's clear that's what it intended to do. I don't start with the assumption that's a positive, me personally. 
There's also something else that on the second side is once actually in the bloodstream, they're more vulnerable to peroxidation. Now, why this is relevant is it could be that the reason you have lower numbers of LDL beyond that production synthesis is that you also have more of them that are in the bloodstream getting oxidized faster and therefore removed by scavenger receptors faster. Mm -hmm. If that's actually how it is that you're ending up with the lower LDL number, no, thank you. I don't I don't want any part of that. Right. <laughs> like, a lot this of is like, kind of like the that. free radical stuff that's like messing up your DNA, you know, right? Yeah, I don't. Um, let me take a step back because this kind of really puts the PUFA discussion into perspective. If you just guzzle PUFAs like crazy. These are like refined canola oil. Like what are yeah, PUFA? Yeah. Seed oils. Yeah. Just, just, you know, down it. Yeah. I could, I would bet money that you won't die of an MI, of a myocardial infarction. You heart won't attack. die of a heart attack, right? But I believe that you'll die sooner than if you hadn't done it. Hmm. And, that, and that's why the term that I always drive everything back to is all-cause mortality. What I, what I care about, whenever somebody sends me a study and they're like, hey, check this out. This thing, this activity, this uh, medicine, this whatever, it reduced chances of people who took it or reduce the chances of people having, say, a heart attack by X amount. Then I go, great. Now I want to see the balance sheet. Did it improve their chance to live overall? And that's probably one of the dark secrets of this larger equation is I wouldn't be standing in front of you today if going all the way back to November 2015, when I first started all this, I got to see that seminal study I wanted. I was looking for. I was like, okay, I, I hear about the heart attack, but that's one particular way to die. It should be that if LDL is deleterious in any form, like there's no benefit, then reducing LDL should have a net longevity. You should mm -hmm. live longer because mm -hmm. you can take out the whole cardiovascular component. It's gone, right? right? Now you can just focus on, hey, I just That's need to not die cancer, cancer, infection, yeah. all that stuff, yeah. right? Now I know better. I've learned a lot. There's actually an immune response that associates LDL, and it gets back to why I was talking about the ambulances before. So it seems to be that those medications that radically bring down LDL have marginal or no or detrimental impact on all-cause mortality. Interesting. That's so. a, there's an understandable selection bias, particularly with drug studies. I say understandable because, of course, if you're, if you're running a drug study and you're seeing higher all-cause mortality from the intervention group, you're not going to take that drug to market. And so a lot of these trials, as they even get to like, say, you know, uh, stage two or, or stage phase three, three, yeah, they, you know, they're more transparent in, that, in what their outcomes are. And if that, if that outcome doesn't look good, that's considered a failure of that drug trial. So even though that drug may have succeeded at dropping LDL, but it increased mortality, then it's the failure of the drug and is not to be counted towards the total of evidence with LDL. So if you ran 20 drug trials and two of them brought down LDL and also brought down mortality, even just a little bit, oh, well then good. That not only shows that these drugs are successful, it's further evidence that lowering LDL uh, reduces heart attacks, et cetera, right? Even if the other 18 showed the opposite. Correct. So here's where it gets interesting. If you look uh, at the literature as it stands, all the major statin trials, you would have assumed, even with this natural selection bias, which again, I think is understandable because it's a business model, you would assume that all-cause mortality would look great because they're choosing the best of the best. And yet it's flat across the board. There's, uh, there's very few trials that actually had a net benefit in all-cause mortality that were primary prevention, which is to say 
somebody who didn't already have a heart attack. Which is a wild result given how you explain it. If your hypothesis makes sense, which is these are ambulances, LDL is ambulances. And if you just randomly shut down ambulances, of course, you're not going to save people's lives. That's association, a correlation, not a causative factor. So I think if you take that data into the account in, in your hypothesis, your theory here, it makes sense. And, and that's why I theorize one of these two things are possible. One, if you went into that statin data and you stratified for this triad, high HDL, low triglycerides, high LDL, that it may show that statins have no benefit. And this, I, I, I hope that, I'm, that this isn't even a possibility or that that triad would show that there's a net detriment because that group would be more likely to be on a higher fat, low carb diet, yeah. not even intentionally. Like it might just yeah. be people who, who normally gravitate towards eating more fat and eating less carbs and are, you know, athletic or something along those lines. I, I doubt we'll ever know because I don't, I doubt that they'll ever stratify that group if it turns out that there's no net benefit for having statins for that group. Why would they do that? Why would they cut out a large portion of the population that would otherwise be taking statins? Other than doing good science, but but that aside, sure. Um, your argumentation, your data, and your knowledge of literature is very compelling, at least for me. So, but why haven't you knocked down every single AHA, American Heart Association guidelines, all of that? What is the steel man argument on the other side? Or, or does it just take time? Uh, what do you think is the blocker here? No, it's a couple of things. It, it takes time and there's there's two different, I guess you could say platforms. So right right now, the most common answer I would get from a lipidologist, because I, I have been knocking on their doors this whole time. Mm -hmm. The most common answer I get is, well, if you believe this, it needs to be a study. And it's a little bit of a trick answer because I actually can't easily turn this into a study because Currently, you can't make a study for where people are voluntarily at high levels of LDL cholesterol because that's considered unethical. You can't get through an IRB. Correct. Really? You can't get you. So the guidelines as of just a few months ago state explicitly that if somebody has an LDL of 190 or greater, they should be on the maximally tolerated statin without any further qualifiers. Like huh. it doesn't even matter what their triglycerides or uh, HDL is or anything. That basically kind of cuts off even just, you know, observing lean mass hyperresponders and what might be an IRB approved study. Whoa. That's a, yeah. So in a, in a weird way, you're prevented from codifying the study in the way that would otherwise be accepted for publication. Right. Right. That's one platform. This other platform is kind of a platform that obviously I'm a big believer in, which is, hey, why do we have to follow certain rules of science? as they're establishing them, if they can't adapt to the new information as it becomes available. And so I, I tend to call this different things. I sometimes call it open source science or peer-to-peer -peer science or Citizen whatever. Citizen science, biohacking. Exactly. And, and they would be right to point out that, hey, Dave could be doing something that's dangerous. The whole reason to have things like IRB is uh, to help prevent people from taking unnecessary risks, et cetera, right? Mm. And again, I acknowledge that like I, I but that's the, the problem here is that you have a lack of interest in even moving forward with something that everybody consents to in order to get the proper amount of data. Uh, like I could tell right now I have a Facebook lean mass hyper responder group. I could go back to them right now and I could say, guys, I've been informed that I really need to tell you and with extra vigor that you guys are all at risk. You should all be on the maximally dose statin ASAP. 
I've already had, um, there's one guy who was getting tired of me qualifying to him because he has FH, he has a high calcium score. And so I wanted to be very mindful. I wanted to be like, just so you know, like a lipidologist, a cardiologist, they would say that what you're doing is like very concerning, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to be sure that you get from me a two-sided opinion and so forth. And he basically just said this up front. He was like, Dave, I don't even care what you say. You could turn into the biggest, um, <laughs> you know, pro-lipid person. I'm about to run a marathon with my son for the first time. The guy was like 62. He's about to run a marathon with his uh, 40-year-old son. He was like, I wouldn't even care if it shortened my life by another 10 years. I've never felt better in my life. His health span's way better, yeah. This all comes back to the same thing, which is we're now at least in a new paradigm and that there's a metabolic thing to consider. I'm already acknowledging that there may be two tracks, one of those being metabolic derangement, in which case LDL may be a, a bad sign and therefore it may get coupled with bad outcomes. Right. But there's also potentially a metabolic benefit, particularly if you're powered by fat for which high LDL makes sense and may even be appropriate. But it seems like, yeah, it seems like the momentum is going in our direction here. I mean, there's plenty of academics that I know you've sp spoken to and that we've come on the program that I'm sure would love to run this study. I mean, I I'm sure you've talked to a, a number of IRBs, but I imagine there's every university has one. There's some independent ones. Have you exhausted all your options? I mean, this is just uh, core science, right? Like this is actually what science is. You have a hypothesis. It's is reasonable given observations from these n equals one. This is the purest of pure science, as opposed. You sound to, like me twelve months ago. So, <laughs> look, I can make the impassioned plea. Yeah. If you genuinely believe, let's say you are Mister Prolipid Hypothesis, yeah. you're like Dave. You are flatly wrong. These lean mass hyperresponders are on their way to the grave. Right. right? You should be my biggest advocate for putting together this longitudinal yeah. study, right? Yeah. You should you should be the one who's like, let's start the clock on them right now. Let's get cardiometabolic markers ongoing. Let's get those CIMTs. Let's see any and all progression of atherosclerosis so that because I assume it's going to happen, it's going to be happening at levels of FH. That's how you would be. Let's get it. Let's get it rolling. Think about it. If you're Ansel Keys and you're the one proposing this, this group is somebody you've been waiting for forever because lean mass hyperresponders have low cardiovascular risks across the board, save right. the one thing, the, H, uh, the LDL cholesterol being extraordinarily high. They're, right. they're perfect. They're the perfect group to test the lipid hypothesis. Right. And if you really believe in the lipid hypothesis, you should be 100% behind this. You should be excited that this group was found and that they'll prove it once and for all why everyone should be taking cholesterol-lowering medication. I mean, yeah, like we'll see all these people die. And then, well, I mean, I think that would be like the, I guess, a seal man. Like, hey, we as medical experts will, you know, you are putting people on a dangerous path. We don't want to risk people dying. But it sounds like there is a cohort of people that's rapidly growing that are seeing benefits. So it seems like even that seal man argument is getting de-risked because people are voluntarily doing it. People are seeking this out. And the corpus of data from these n equals ones are positive. So I think even that steel mint argument doesn't really ring compelling. I mean, it sounds like you you tried all all paths. I mean, I'm just curious I'm, I'm to hear. I'm working on it. Okay. I'm working on. It. Look, I in my brain, there's really just sort of two tracks, if you will. One track is what I've been doing all along, which is researching, disseminating information as fast as I can. It's it's this new platform of science I'm talking about. And I'm encouraging other people to be as responsible as they can be, acknowledge what risks that they know they're taking on, 
But at the same time, as much as I can get them to be be meticulous, be very transparent, and absolutely concede any and all mistakes. It's all data, right? Like it's uh, any any hypothesis. This is why I like to make hypotheses in advance and publicly is I'm trying to keep myself to account as well, right? It's not that I'm trying to show off. I'm quite confident my hypotheses will fail plenty of times, right? Yeah. But that's to me, this is the scientific method in action, right? I don't. It's 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 often it's much more yeah. It's much more pure than I think a lot of academics do, right? They won't they won't they can't publish their non significant results, right? It's a, You're out there doing I think what is more pure science than what quote unquote a lot of academic scientists are doing, which is well, ironic. And that's, and that's why I want that's why I want the new wave of people to hopefully take on this creed. Because yeah. I think the soul of science, in a sense, is kind of at stake here, in my opinion, is I feel like we can have a new awakening to saying, look, let's never get back to a point where people run super multi-million dollar trials, get the data, and then after they have the data, do things like the p-hacking and, and the rearranging and then be like, aha, here's how we can fit the narrative that matches who the people who funded us wanted to see, right? Right. Let's instead be transparent all the way through. One of the things I wish publications would do, and this isn't my idea, but ever since researching about it, I feel every publication should do, is they negotiate with a team that's considering a particular experiment, determine the design, publish the design in advance of the experiment, and then agree to publish the results after it's done. So like lock it in. So don't let people fish around afterwards. It's the only way because the problem is right now publications, and this isn't this is an open secret. Publications will publish what uh, shows positive findings, and they tend towards those findings that usually match the opinions of the editors. Yeah, which is not surprising. That's human nature, right? Like incentives are for academics to have pu positive results. You're a journal editor. You want to have papers that people will cite, which means it has to be a positive result. So I don't think anyone has bad intentions here. I think if you talk to exactly, these doctors, exactly. I think they do care about improving outcomes. You talk to scientists, they want to do good science. But in this current infrastructure, the publication, to get to near, you got to publish, to, to, to publish, you got to p-hack sometimes. I, I get the incentives and it's... There's a term that also comes from somebody in the field called uh, white hat syndrome. You feel you're the good guy fighting the good fight. And therefore, maybe the way by which you're coming to the evidence is not the way you would idealize, but it's still the right evidence. You're still coming, you're still helping the cause that you know is the right cause, right? And if something doesn't match your, your preconceived worldview, you don't want to hurt the cause. Besides, you're now second guessing how you did the design. Maybe, you know, uh, I just got too many people in the control group that wasn't right. And now you're... And that's that's why that's why the whole point of having these things be transparently executed is because you're preventing your ability to bias yourself, even if it's for the best of intentions of, that you can imagine. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I want to ask you then, do you have an example where you had a hypothesis and it was absolutely wrong? And you're like, I thought this was going to happen. And oops, I fell flat on my face. Or have you been have you been spot on? I, well, it's not that I've been <laughs> spot on. It's that I've been a lot more right than wrong, but I don't, I'm, that's not a brag. A lot, honestly, a lot of times I've been surprised myself that I've been right mm. about things. Here's what's funny. This most recent experiment, I was coming off the carnivore diet, and uh, I know you kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that. We'll, we'll backtrack to that in a second. But um, there was an opportunity where at the very end of the carnivore diet, I was going to be in a controlled diet mode anyway. 
So I tested a hypothesis that Paul Mason, Dr. Paul Mason, brought to my attention last year, where I would add dextrose. And I did it in the form of uh, bottle caps, this Willy Wonka candy. He hypothesized that this would ultimately uh, lead to a higher insulin response, lead to more LDL receptor production that would be expressed in the liver and therefore take down total LDL particles overall. Now, I had already done an added sugar experiment from last year, but it was primarily fructose-based. It was uh, sucrose, I want to say, and it was with uh, Skittles. <laughs> By the way, I, I hope I don't have to do these candy experiments anymore. They're not really that fun. They sound <laughs> like they're fun from a distance. They're not. They're not fun. Yeah. But I didn't end up committing. I was trying to think, did I actually hypothesize with them? But I didn't. If you see the video, um, even though I want us to both hypothesize in advance, I, kept, I said I was torn. What's funny is I at first hypothesized that my triglycerides would go up. But the more I was thinking about it, even while talking to him on the broadcast, the more I was like, no, I think actually my triglycerides will go down. Mm -hmm. And so that's the one I stuck to. And sure enough, I ended up being right about the triglycerides. The reason the reason the triglycerides went down is because of the higher insulin ended up being a result of a net uh, subtraction of the triglycerides off of the boats, right. if you will. Right. Makes, makes sense. You have more sugar load. You're, you're, you're metabolizing more on a sugar basis rather than a fat basis. Makes sense. Right. Yeah. There's one that I might have ended up being wrong on if my original design had worked. And that was on the weight gain experiment. I had hoped that I'd have a stall for a moment after switching from the standard American diet, which was designed to gain weight over to the baseline diet, which was keto. I'd hoped that it'd be stalled at least for a few days so that I could capture that vital lipid data. Yeah. And I hypothesized that my uh, LDL would go up. But unfortunately, that got confounded because I immediately lost weight. Like <laughs> going switching over to keto, there was no stall at all. It's just like, pfft. which makes sense, right? Because that's what a lot of the people's responses to a ketogenic diet is. You lose a lot of water weight and, and all of that. Yeah, I'd love to hear your experience on carnivore. I mean, I think that's been obviously uh, a fad. I don't know if it's a fad, but it's definitely a topic of the jour in, I would say, the low carb community in the last six months or so. Curious to get your overall highlights there. I mean, the data is interesting, at least from N equals, side, N equals one side of how people feel like they're resolving some autoimmune issues. But I guess there's also, for more classic ketogenic folks, you know, people appreciate the fibers, the polyphenols from plants. Curious if you have any strong opinions there. Obviously, you just came off of a carnivore diet. So carnivore has been a subject of deep fascination for me. And the reason is because from a distance, it's one of those things that seems like it shouldn't work. It, it shouldn't, right? Like yeah. you, you naturally think, oh, come on, very <laughs> low variety of mi micronutrients. I mean, there's something's got to give pretty quickly. And it led into my doing some very deep investigating on uh, proteins. And when I say deep, I mean like a few weeks. Not There's other people like Ted Naiman who could tell you a lot more. But I really wanted to understand why one could have a lot of steaks, which is just muscle meat. Why could somebody have a lot of steaks and not be feeling a micronutrient deficiency pretty quickly? Like, how's that possible? Because one of the benefits of doing what I do is a lot of people like to send me their blood work to do interpretations. And so I have a few friends who are carnivore, who I've seen their blood work over the last few years. And I've even prodded them into giving me different tests as far as uh, nutrients go, because I've been curious to, you know, to see what would change. One of them has uh, some issues, but I don't know if it's related to nutrients. Don't know yet. But the others 
dumped. They look fine. And they're, I think only one of them is eating almost entirely steaks, but even then they kind of veer out like they do fish and a few other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that just, that really haunted me. Like I kept thinking, gosh, how is this possible? Then I started learning a bit more about protein. I started learning more about amino acids, which of course make up the proteins. And I started to realize, and I'll actually be presenting on this at uh, the carnivore uh, convention that's going to be coming up that piggybacks onto low carb Denver. Mm-hmm. But I started to realize that actually there is something to be said about consuming a lot of native molecules, as I call them. I call them native molecules because they're animal based. It's not that you cannot make use of plant based composition. It's that the composition is going to be very different from animal composition. When you're having animal, you're having a composition, a composition of amino acids that are close to your own signature. Mm-hmm. Therefore, of what you would otherwise be built up, you know, if you're if you're a house, if you're a brick house, right, you still may have a lot of wood and uh, metal and other things inside, but the composition of those different raw materials are going to be comparable to another brick house. Right. Right. I could see how this argument leads on a dangerous path of being cannibals, but please continue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the cannibal diet, I don't know if that's come up yet, but, you know, might be popular. Might be. So, but, uh, but truly, um, the first thing that I noticed after I went carnivore, because I was good, it was a little bit of an exploratory experiment. I wanted to see if I could actually stick to bovine entirely through. So cow only, um, so I was mainly just doing beef. I was doing uh, hamburger patties, steaks, and all beef hot dogs. Okay. And the first thing that struck me, I mean, struck me, is that my appetite totally disappeared. Like, my appetite's lower on keto, and I'm used to just talking about it that way. But in this case, I mean, it was just not there. Like, I didn't even spend much time thinking about food. Right. Uh I, I quickly realized that if I were to ever want to lose weight, like really lose weight quickly, this was it. This was the diet because just, again, it didn't take much at all. And I just wasn't even thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, It's similar to my experience where, I mean, it's like hard to eat more than two ribeye steaks a day. I mean, just like your appetite is pretty full. And it's like, mm, I feel pretty satiated even though that's not you know that many calories probably sub 2000 calories or like around 2000 calories that and of course as just about everybody reports your gi stress all of that just disappears yeah like i and i don't want to say it's entirely gone i kept very meticulous notes i want to say i maybe had two ish incidents that um i journaled uh, but they were not, they, they weren't anything close to what I'm having, even regular keto, mm. uh, particularly when I have a lot more fiber in my diet. Mm. And uh, that's another thing that from an engineering perspective just kept lingering with me as I was like, wow, there's so little heading to the restroom. Like, am I really absorbing that much more of what I'm consuming? Right. And if so, what does that mean? Like, is this is this really something my body particularly wanted to have to this degree and has that level of proportionality that's used? Yeah, no, I think I'm in a similar boat as you. I'm, I'm interested just to see how the space evolves. Obviously, pretty early, I would say much earlier in science than keto and low carb, but the N equals ones and the, and the, and the citizen data there is, there's, there's some interesting signal there at the very least. 
I think is a safe way to say it. Like it would be, I think, overly dismissive to just say, oh, they're a bunch of crazy people doing carnivore. They're full of crap. I think that's overly dismissive. Well, it's it, at a minimum, it's opened some new doors for people who want a sustainable multiple removal diet. Yeah. So if you do suffer from, you know, wide range, I mean, Michaela Peterson is, is of course, brought up constantly. Yeah. Um, exactly what it is that she has these intensive, you know, allergies and autoimmune responses to maybe never known past this point. But the fact that they were there and were truly severely impacting her life in a very material way uh, is no question. Like nobody argues that point. Right. And this saved her. Um, it's it's quite a compelling story. No, I think this is a really good discussion. I want to wrap up with a couple last questions here. Uh, maybe this is going to be overly fitting your nuance, but I think given all these experiments and all the data you've collected over the last three plus years now. Would you have some overall guidelines for someone to look to have a better nutritional uh, inputs? I mean, could you, you know, boil down some guidelines for people as part as the first part of the question? Then, two, obviously, we're in January of 2019. Uh, hopefully, a very nice, productive year ahead of us. What are some of the big things we should watch out for? Any experiments you're excited about uh, running over the next, you know, 10, 12 months here? Um, there's one that I'm hoping to do next month that if I do, it'll be very explosive. Uh, but I have to keep it secret. All right. We'll stay tuned um, for that. <laughs> yeah. Keep, keep an eye out for it. As far as just general advice, I mean, here's the thing that I feel I would give that, um, uh, may, may sound a little more unique to me and not to other people. Uh, one, hopefully, hopefully anybody who's looked into my uh, research, even if they're not a low-carb fan, has at least seen more than enough evidence of how dynamic lipids are. So whatever your lipid panel is, be aware that it moves, and it can move actually very quickly. Um, I know that the medical community doesn't treat it like that. I certainly do. <laughs> and it's worth finding out a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, right? I want to riff off of that, which is interesting because I think people realize that blood sugar, blood sugar moves all the time, right? You eat a, you, you eat a sugary thing, boom, your blood sugar's up. You fast a little bit, eat very low carb, your blood sugar's down. And given the energy distribution hypothesis, or again, it, it makes sense that triglycerides and fats also have that dynamicism. I think what happens is a lot of people treat it as though... If your LDL suddenly rose, it's like if there was um, toxins in the bloodstream or that you got injured in some way that you need immediate medical therapy to resolve. And again, the very first question I'm always going to ask is, is there a potential metabolic um, rationale for why this happened? If you've had, you know, an LDL, like I had an LDL of around 130 my whole life. All of a sudden, my LDL is like 260. Okay, now wait, something changed. If that thing that changed explains why it would be at 260, then if my doctor goes, oh, this must be genetic, I'm going to push back. Be like, no, I actually changed my mm -hmm. diet significantly. I think this may be related to my diet. And as such... We should be thankful that we can actually see that there's this whole other component that may be pretty relevant to us. 
Um, and that's and that's why, like, I want to say for for a lot of people, just getting that first part is already like really hard. That's already a big uphill battle because almost none of us think of it that way, right? It's an, already a new paradigm just to get there before even getting onto the energy model. Now, another thing that I would say that I press upon, and I'm I'm sure you've picked this up, is I like for everybody to constantly challenge whatever their belief system is on a regular basis. Like, think of whatever you feel the most passionate about and try to find an opposing voice that will have a respectful debate with you on it. It's a good thing. It's a positive thing, right? If you're just constantly in that mode, I feel like you can have a lot of personal growth. And I feel like you can really advance knowledge a lot faster for everybody else. Yeah, it sharpens your tool, sharpens your reasoning. Yeah, and if if I could pick a last one, last one I would just say, um, I do a lot of measurements. I get uh, 24, 25 markers now every time I get a blood test. I There's nobody who does, nobody at least I know, who gets as many measurements, especially from blood, as I do on such an intensive basis. But I can tell you there's no meter that's more important than how you feel. People... Mm. People get caught up in diet advice and what they're told to do and will endure feeling terrible in order to chase numbers like ketone numbers or a particular. And if that's happening around the clock, look into it. But don't assume that the advice supersedes how you feel because that's the most important meter you have. A very illuminating conversation, I think, was... You know, I, I, I learned a lot through this conversation and I hope our listeners did it as well. So how do people follow you? You're on Twitter, Dave Keto. You're at cholesterolcode.com. And uh, how, else, how else do people find you? Uh, I do have like an Instagram, uh, Dave Feldman Keto. I'll, I'll concede I'm not that active on it, but that's mainly just because it's very, Instagram is not desktop friendly. It's very phone friendly. And then mm -hmm. they like cut you off at the desktop. So anyway, I won't rant on that. I'll just say as a geek, that kind of is a thing for me. There's also, uh, I do have a YouTube channel, which is just uh, youtube.com slash Dave Feldman TV, um, which I'm occasionally putting videos up on. And incidentally, I do plan to have a number of short videos, kind of like quick hits, uh, particularly for people on low carb that are around particular subjects, such as, you know, if you have high triglycerides on low carb, what to do about that. And, um, you know, what if you have low HDL, how much of that is genetic related, things along those lines. But those are, pretty much Twitter and cholesterolcode.com, especially um, commenting at cholesterolcode.com is probably the easiest way to reach me if you're trying to. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dave. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in this week. Every month, we release a new HVMN product offer available on our website. Simply visit www.hvmn.com pod to view this month's special offer. Of course, writing reviews and sharing the show with your friends are appreciated as well. Until next time, Jeff out.